You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Take your Bibles tonight, turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to look at a passage in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 5. We have finished the first chapter in the book of James, and we'll be beginning the second chapter in a, in a few weeks. There'll be a period of a few Sunday nights when I will not be preaching. I'll be gone next Sunday night, and, and John Whaley will be, will be showing the film for you uh, on the cult explosion and then the week after that, Alan McBrayer is going to preach on Sunday evening. And Alan is going to preach a series of about three or four messages this summer out of the book of Hebrews. Some tremendous doctrinal stuff. And then uh, a good friend of mine that uh, was very instrumental in, in my becoming a Christian, as a matter of fact, um, is minister of music in a church just outside of uh, Denton. And um, just finished his uh, music degree at North Texas State University, as a matter of fact. Has a beautiful, beautiful bass voice beautiful full round bass voice plays the guitar um, in fact uh, has was always kind of my idol uh, as far as the the guitar and he's going to come and be with us on a Sunday night and lead us in a, a service of praise that is really how God has gifted him the best and his name is Eddie Blakely he's not very showy in what he does but he just stands with his guitar, guitar and sings songs of praise most of them are songs that he has written or that close friends of his uh, have written and uh, I believe that God's going to use him that night to bless you uh, tremendously. Uh, just his voice, when he opens his mouth, it just seems like the Spirit uh, is made manifest wherever he is. And uh, so I believe that God's going to bless you on that. And then, after all of that three or four week period is over with, then I'm going to come back into the book of James and we'll begin the second chapter. But tonight, let's open to the fifth chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 5. And I want to preach to you tonight on the, su the subject or the topic of the two resurrections, John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. Let's read those together in the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I don't know if you've ever done much study in the Gospel of John, but I spent about a year and a half preaching through the Gospel of John when I was pastoring in Florida and only got to the 10th chapter. And we spent literally almost a year and a half, verse by verse, exposition of the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings and only reached the 10th chapter. And at about that time was when uh, uh, the Lord began to move in the direction of us coming back to Fort Worth. And so my preaching through the Gospel of John stopped. But preaching through the Gospel of John was one of the greatest blessings in the study of Scripture that I've ever had. 
in the study of John's gospel, as I was preaching through it, when I came to the fifth chapter, I came to understand that the fifth chapter in John's gospel marks a transition stage in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Because you see, the things that Jesus says and the things that Jesus does in the fifth chapter of John are the very things that ultimately lead to his crucifixion. It seems that in the fifth chapter of John is when the die is cast ultimately, and it seems very obvious that Jesus is in fact going to the cross. It's at that time when his enemies are committed to killing. At the point in time in the fifth chapter of John is when they make the decision and even voice that decision that this man, this man Jesus, that calls himself the Jewish Messiah, is in fact going to be put to death. That all takes place in the fifth chapter of John's gospel. This is why in John chapter 5, Jesus heals a lame man. He heals the man by the pool of Bethsaida. And the Pharisees wouldn't have really been bothered by that a whole lot, but it just happened to be on the Sabbath day when Jesus did it. And so he healed the lame man on the Sabbath day, the day of worship, Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, when, when all of, uh, everything was set aside and no one was to do work. Now, the Pharisees had their laws. They had their restrictions. They had all of the minute details that they had built up around the Sabbath day of how you were to keep the Sabbath day holy unto the Lord. Work was strictly prohibited on the Sabbath day. And so when Jesus healed the lame man, that was considered an act of work and therefore was considered breaking the Sabbath. So they accused Jesus of being a lawbreaker, of being a Sabbath breaker. And that was kind of the final straw there when they decided that Jesus was going, in fact, to be put to death. But not even that was really the ultimate thing. What was even worse than Jesus healing the lame man on the Sabbath day was Christ's answer to the Pharisees when they asked him why he didn't bother to keep their Sabbath day restrictions. And Jesus' answer is what ultimately caused him to be crucified. Jesus answered them, in essence, the reason I do not keep your minute laws about the Sabbath and all of the restrictions and the ordinances that you've built up around it is because, in effect, I am God. You see, the whole Gospel of John is dedicated to presenting Jesus not just as a man, but as God in the flesh. It begins very quickly, right off in the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. James, or John states his purpose in the very first verse of the Gospel. And from then on, throughout the entire Gospel of John, he is showing and presenting Jesus to be none other than God himself in the flesh. And so Jesus answers to them uh, why he did not keep their Sabbath restrictions, basically because he himself was God. Jesus said in verses 15 and 16 and around in there, in that, that area in chapter 5, he says, listen, the Father is working right now. He said, and just as the Father works, so do I also work. In other words, God is working, God the Father is working, and as you see God the Father working, that is exactly the way that I am working. Jesus claimed equality with God in his person. Verse 18 says, It was for this cause, therefore, that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because they understood what Jesus was claiming, that he was, in fact, equal with the Father. He claimed equality with God in his person, but not only that, Jesus claimed equality with God in his power, things that only God can do. Jesus claimed the ability and the authority to do. Only God has the authority to judge. Yet Jesus says in the fifth chapter of John, I am the judge. Only God has the ability to give life, both spiritual and physical life. Yet in John chapter 5, Jesus 
speaks very clearly to the Pharisees and says, it is the Son that has been given the power to give life. And so from the fifth chapter of John on, the die is cast and the Pharisees have set their hearts, they have set their minds that Jesus is going to be put to death one way or another. And so in these verses tonight, Jesus just kind of continues in this narration, in this conflict with the Pharisees, and he continues talking to them about his life-giving power, about his ability to give life, not only physically, but his ability to give life spiritually. He speaks about resurrection power. Now, in these verses, he talks about two deaths. There are, in fact, two deaths, the scripture says. There is physical death and there is spiritual death. And if there are two deaths, then there also must be two resurrections. If there is a physical death, then there is a physical resurrection. If there is a spiritual death, and the scripture says that apart from Jesus, we are all spiritually dead, then there must also be a spiritual resurrection. And in these verses of scripture that we just read, Jesus talks about the two resurrections. He talks about physical resurrection, that he has the, the authority and the power to give physical resurrection. And he talks also about spiritual resurrection, that he has the ability and the power to give spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. And so in verses 25 and 26, Jesus deals, first of all, with spiritual resurrection. Notice in verse 25, one of the most exciting verses, as a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John is right here in verse 25. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and even fact is now. An hour is coming, and it is even now, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. Now, as I said to you, the word dead is used in two senses. It's used in a physical sense, and it is used in a spiritual sense. Now, Jesus says, a day is coming when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall live. There, Jesus is referring to the physically dead. He's looking toward that day in the resurrection. A day is coming when they shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall live. But he's also referring to the spiritual aspect of this death. Jesus says the day is coming and now is. It's right now, at this very instant, at this very time, the time has come when those who are spiritually dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall live. Jesus is speaking about those who are dead in trespasses and sins. He says, the time has come now, I have come, when they will hear my voice and they will live. They will be born again, if you want to use the same terminology that Jesus uses in just a couple of chapters before this, John chapter 3. Now, you've got to understand why Jesus uses this kind of ter terminology, why he says this at this particular time. Remember who he's talking to. Remember that he's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to church-going people, as a matter of fact, the keepers of the law, those who were looked upon as the religious authorities of their day and the religious individuals of their day and time. Yet Jesus said, I've seen into your heart, and he knew that their hearts were dead. He knew that their hearts were not beating with the heartbeat of God. Jesus knew that the Pharisees were spiritually dead. And so he says, a day is coming, and even right now the day is here, when those who are dead, meaning you, Pharisees, and they understood what he meant, will hear the voice of the Son of God and will live. And the Bible teaches that every single one of us, every single one of us, apart from Jesus Christ, is dead, spiritually dead. Every man, woman, and child is spiritually dead until they have been made alive with Christ Jesus. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. 
Just to read a quick verse of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, and then we'll skip to verse 4 and 5. Speaking to these Ephesian Christians, Paul speaks about this spiritual death that Jesus is referring to. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4. But God... Remember when we preached that, that's a real big phrase there, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And in parentheses, by grace, you have been saved. So Jesus is speaking, first of all, of the spiritual resurrection. The day is now when the dead, those who are spiritually dead in their transgressions and sins, now the day has come, I am here. They will hear my voice and they will live. As I was studying this passage, I read some stuff by William Barclay. William Barclay uh, was a very well-known Scottish commentator, uh, more of the liberal slant and don't agree with everything that he says, but there are some good things that William Barclay has to say. And in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he mentions four things that it means to be spiritually dead. Let me give them to you very quickly. Four things that it means to be spiritually dead. First of all, to be spiritually dead means to have stopped trying. It means to have stopped trying. It means to view sin as irreversible. It means to give up. It means to feel that you have gone so far that there is no hope for you. That's the first step, he says, in spiritual deadness. I talked to a fellow one time, was sharing the Lord with him, and came to the point of of challenge with commitment to the gospel message. And I said to him, I said, would you like to make a commitment of your life to Jesus Christ? Would you like to be saved right now? Would you like to do uh, by faith what we've just talked about uh, for the last 15 or 20 minutes? And the man looked back at me and he said, yes, but I can't. And I said, why can't you? What's to stop you? And he said these words to me just as clearly as I'm speaking to you now. He said, because I've gone too far, because I've sinned too much and God cannot forgive me. Barclay says that to be spiritually dead means to have stopped trying. It means to see life and to see sin as irreversible. But listen, that's not the message of the gospel, is it? Praise the Lord. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that God's arm is not short. (laughs) Praise the Lord. He had to reach a long way down to get some of us, to get most of us. God's arm is not short. His grace is as far and is as long and as far reaching as it has to be to reach you and pull you up into eternal life, into new life in Jesus Christ. But to be dead in sins means, first of all, to stop trying. Second of all, it means to stop feeling. To be dead in trespasses means to stop feeling. It means that someone has rejected Jesus, has rejected the gospel for a period of time and has reached that point in life where they just stop feeling. Like Pharaoh, their heart has become hardened. The scripture says that time after time after time, Pharaoh hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, and then a transition comes in and it says, and then God hardened his heart. And that's when your your heart really gets hard, when God steps in and hardens your heart. To be spiritually dead means to have come to the point of being insensitive, to have a hardened heart, to have rejected and to have turned your back upon the gospel message to the point that your conscience has become seared and you no longer even care to have stopped feeling, to have stopped trying, first of all, to have stopped feeling. Then third, he says, to have stopped thinking. To be spiritually dead means to have stopped 
thinking. This seems to be the, the third, trans, the third uh, uh, progression in the thing. It's where you just flat don't want to think about spiritual things anymore. I've been visiting before with someone in their home, and this has actually happened to me. Uh, I can tell you lots of stories of things that have happened to me in, in visits. Not so much in Texas, but in Florida. People are weird in Florida. They do crazy things. I mean, people are weird everywhere, but in Southern Florida, they really, you know, it's really some real strange experiences I've had visiting in people's homes. But I, I Bob can get a test to that. Uh, I had people pull guns. I mean, you know, weird things. Um, but I was sitting, visiting with a couple in their home one time, and about halfway through the congreg congregation, through the conversation, the husband just got up and walked out of the room. <laughs> he started listening. He didn't want to think about it anymore. And so he just got up and he walked out of the room. He didn't want to think about it anymore. He, the best way to stop thinking about what I was talking about was just to physically remove himself from the premises. And so without a word, without a kiss my foot or anything, he just walked out of the room and went to the back of the house. When I preached on this passage of Scripture in Florida, that Sunday morning after I preached this passage, one of the, my young deacons came up to me. He said, James, you won't believe what happened to me this week. He said, there's a fellow that I've been after for a long time, wanting to share the gospel with. And this week, sitting at lunch in the hospital, this fellow worked in the hospital. He said, we were talking and, and I was wanting to get the, the conversation around to spiritual things. And so I began to kind of move in that direction. And about the time that I began to talk about God and about church and about the Bible and all that kind of stuff and started quoting some scripture, the guy looked at me and he said, Tommy, stop. Don't say any more. Don't say another word. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. You see, the guy had come to that point in spiritual deadness where he just flat did not want to be confronted with the truth. Just flat did not want to be forced to think about it anymore. But you see, the scripture says, folks, that there's a day coming when people are not going to be able to turn off the gospel message. There's going to be a day when God the Father is going to confront every single person, eyeball to eyeball, face to face, with the truth of the gospel message. But the third step in spiritual deadness is just flat to have stopped thinking. And the fourth, Barclay says, is to have stopped repenting in any form or any fashion. If a person has come to the point where they can sin and live a life of just complete sin and have total peace in their heart about it, it's a sign that they've reached the ultimate in spiritual deadness. I have had periodically sometimes Christians say to me, you know, I really began to question my, my salvation. I really began to doubt my salvation because it just seems like I'm always plagued by this sense of this burden about my sin. <laughs> and what I always say to that person is, you better say praise the Lord. Because the very fact that you are burdened by sin, the very fact that you are, are burdened with this feeling about your own personal sin, if it does not say for sure that you were born again, at least it is testimony to the fact that the Spirit of God is still working in your heart and that your heart has not been hardened. But to be spiritually dead means to have stopped repenting. Jesus says, a day is coming and the day is now when the spiritually dead, when those who are dead will hear my voice and they will live. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you know what that means? It means that with the coming of Jesus, there was a new voice. With the coming of Jesus, the way was open to a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with the Heavenly Father. If you would just hear the voice of Jesus and be saved. He has the ability, he has the power to resurrect. He has the ability to move one from deadness to spiritual life. If you just hear his voice. You know, there are a lot of voices in our world. 
a lot of voices in our society. There's the voice of science. The voice of science is very loud, speaks very loudly. And with all of the virtues of science, science is still not able to remove your guilt. There's the voice of psychology. And with all of the modern advances that modern psychology has made, and there is a lot of good in modern psychology, it is still not able to answer that ultimate question of who am I and why in the world am I here? There's the voice of philosophy, the voice of materialism, all of the various voices that are being sounded and are screaming in your ears every single day of your life. Not one of them, not one of them has the power to give life. Only the voice of the living Lord Jesus. I read the biography of John Wesley one time. Wesley was one of the great preachers of a couple of centuries ago. As a matter of fact, he was one of the founding fathers of the Methodist denomination. Wesley preached on this passage of Scripture that I am preaching on tonight, John chapter 5, verse 25. When he preached on this passage in 1738 in the Easter season, he was not saved. He was a preacher. He was a religious man. He was a very devout man in his uh, method of, of personal lifestyle and all of that kind of stuff. He was a very devout man, but he was not a saved man by his own admission. But around the Easter season of 1738, he preached on this passage of Scripture and later that afternoon entered into his diary these words. Today I preached on John chapter 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall live. The day is coming and the day now is. And then he entered these words in parentheses. It seems so far away. It seems so far away. Seven weeks later, John Wesley's diary had an entry that said, Now is the day. Now is the day. Because you see what had happened to Wesley in that seven-week period. He had had a personal heart-to-heart -heart confrontation with the living Lord Jesus. His faith had left his head and had found his heart. He had a conversion experience with Jesus Christ and he came back to his diary and he entered into his diary that day that seemed so far away when I would hear the voice of Jesus and live. Now that day is. Now it is. Jesus speaks about the resurrection of life, the spiritual resurrection. That day that now is when all those who will hear the voice of Jesus will have life the way that John Wesley had it. Verse 27 is a transition verse between the spiritual resurrection and this physical resurrection that Jesus is going to talk about in verses 28 and 29. Verse 27 is an interesting verse. It kind of serves as a bridge between the two uh, trains of thought. It's interesting to me that in verse 27, as you read it, that in Jesus' life-giving, or in verse 25, that in Jesus' life-giving capacity, he is referred to as the Son of God. Verse 25, he talks about those who hear the voice of the Son of God shall live. And so in verse 25, in his life-giving capacity, he's referred to as the Son of God. But in verse 27, in his judging capacity, in his capacity of being judged, he's referred to as the Son of Man. Now, why is that? Well, some of you theologues have studied those two phrases, those two uh, titles that are given to Jesus in the Scripture. But this is why. In verse 25, he is called the Son of, Ma Son of God. When Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, it is emphasizing his deity. It is emphasizing his godness. 
And so Jesus in verse 25 is referred to as the Son of God in his life-giving capacity. You see, it takes a miracle. It takes a divine miracle, as a matter of fact, to give life to one who is spiritually dead. It takes a divine miracle of God. As a matter of fact, salvation is. You may not have ever looked at it that way, but your salvation was a miracle. Just as much as when Jesus raised the lame man, as when Jesus healed the, lime, the, the blind man, the lame man, the blind man, it takes a divine miracle of God to give spiritual life. And so when Jesus is spoken of in his life-giving capacity, it refers to him as the son of God. But when you come to verse 27, he's not talked about in his life-giving capacity. He's talked about as the judge the judgment that is to come, and he's referred to as the Son of Man. And in the Scripture, when Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man, the emphasis is always upon his humanity. You see, Jesus was all God, yet he was also all man. The hypostatic union of the two natures. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know, but that's what the theologians call it. That means that Jesus was completely God, and he was completely man. And the two were completely joined and con in conjunction together. The Son of God refers to the deity of Jesus. The Son of Man refers to the humanity of Jesus. And in verse 27, the transition verse between spiritual resurrection and physical resurrection, he is referred to as the Son of Man in his judging capacity. What that means is, quite simply, that when judgment is done, it will be upon the basis of man. God will judge man by the standard of man. But which man? By the God-man, by Jesus, by the perfect man, by the sinless man. In other words, God's judgment will not be, uh, uh, will not be uh, what's the word, inadvertent? Is that, is that the word that I'm looking for? God's judgment will not be, uh, <laughs> I can't think of the word that I'm trying to think of. Somebody give me a dictionary. God's judgment will not just be completely removed from man, but God will judge man upon the basis of man, upon the son of man, the God-man who was perfect man. He was God in human form. And because of that, the scripture says, he knows our trials. He knows our temptations. He knows our tests. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize, but one who was tested in all things just as we were, yet without sin. And so when God the Father judges us, it will be a judgment that is based upon the standard of Jesus, the God-man, the Son of Man. Jesus will be qualified to be our judge because he has faced the same trials. He has faced the same temptations. He has faced the same test, yet without sin. And that's why Paul or Jesus in, in this, this verse, this transition verse, before he comes to the physical resurrection, when he is introduced as the judge, is referred to as the Son of Man. You see, the physical resurrection that's spoken of in verses 27 and 28, in those verses in 29, the physical resurrection that is referred to is for the purpose of judgment. The physical resurrection will be for the purpose of judgment. Some will be resurrected to eternal life. Some will be resurrected to eternal separation. And so the physical resurrection, verses 28 through 29, I hope that's just as clear as mud to you. <laughs> Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, is coming. Now he's referring to this physical, this future resurrection, in which all who hear and are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Did you hear that? That the day is coming, the hour is coming when those who are in the tombs shall hear. Think about that for just a moment. That's a phenomenal thought. 
that a day is coming when the tombs are going to open. <laughs> Jesus is going to stand and give the order as he did before Lazarus' tomb. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus is going to stand and he is going to say, come forth, rise up. And the scripture says that all who are dead in Christ are going to rise. And those who are not dead in Christ, those who are dead outside of Christ, everybody is going to rise. The tombs are going to open up and yield their inhabitants. I hesitate to say it because of the television show, but that's, that's incredible, folks. That's incredible. What they wouldn't give for a story like that. Phenomenal that Jesus is simply going to give the command and the tombs are going to open up. The physical resurrection. Now, in these verses of Scripture, Jesus does not make the distinction, but this resurrection doesn't happen all at once, or I believe that it doesn't happen all at once. There may be some debate about this, but my understanding of Scripture says that this resurrection, this physical resurrection, is not all going to happen at one time. Part of the physical resurrection that is coming, that he's referring to, is going to happen before, just before the thousand-year millennial reign. That's when those who are dead in Christ are going to rise. And then at the end of that thousand-year millennial reign, at the time of the, uh, the final judgment, then those who are outside of Christ, who died that did not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then they are going to be raised, and that resurrection is going to be for the purpose of judgment. All of that is dealt with in Revelation chapter 20. We studied that last year when we were preaching through the book of Revelation. And more detail can be, dealt, can be found in that book. But the, 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 the delineation is not made here simply because the purpose that Jesus is speaking here is, is not to spell it out blow by blow and detail by detail, but simply to establish that by His power, it will be by His power that these who are dead will rise. He will speak, He says, and the dead in, and the dead are going to rise from the, from the dead. The main thing is that everyone is going to be resurrected to one of two destinies. We'll either be resurrected to life or resurrected to judgment. Now, very quickly, as we close, look at verse 29. Because in verse 29, Jesus tells the standard by which that will be decided. Those who will be resurrected for life, those who will be resurrected for eternal separation or for judgment. He says, and they shall come forth... Now listen, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. What is Jesus saying? Is Jesus teaching a salvation by works? Many people have come to this verse of Scripture and said that the Bible teaches that if you do good deeds, then you are going to be saved, and if you don't do good deeds, then you are going to be lost. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, if you understand it that way, then you have to virtually ignore almost all of the New Testament. You have to virtually ignore the rest of the New Testament, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Titus 3, 5. I used to sing a song uh, using the words of Titus 3, 5 as a reason, way that I memorized that scripture. For it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercies he saved us, not by works of righteousness. We are saved by trusting Christ. Then what does Jesus mean? That the basis of this resurrection, whether it is a resurrection to life or it is a resurrection to judgment, is determined upon good deeds and bad deeds. What does Jesus mean? Well, understand that God is inspiring these words to be written through the Apostle John. And you need to understand John's perspective 
on what it means to be a child of God. John cannot conceive, he can never conceive of someone being saved and it not making itself manifest in the way that they live their life. John cannot see or cannot even imagine someone who knows the Lord and it does not make a difference in the way they live their life. Just turn with me real quickly to John's first epistle, 1 John. The same John, by the way, that recorded the words of Jesus here in this passage. John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We'll look at three passages real quickly. He says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He says, if we say we have fellowship, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying. He cannot conceive of someone who knows the Lord and yet still walks in darkness. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we're in him. Listen, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Did you hear that? They are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. In John's mind and in the Spirit of God as he inspires the, the writing of the, of, the, the, of the Scripture, there is no conception of someone who knows the Lord as Savior and it does not manifest itself in the life of that person in good deeds, in the character of Christ. And so when you boil it all down, to know Christ means to live a life that is characterized by the life of Jesus. It's all based on verse 24. We have to go back to verse 24, because if you don't, it's all conjecture. Look at what Jesus started this whole discussion with in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and faiths him who sent me, that's what the word believe means, it means to faith, and who believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, what's the basis of salvation? Hearing and believing with the heart to faith has eternal life and does not come into judgment, Jesus says in verse 24. So is Jesus contradicting himself from verse 24 to verse 29? No. It's simply that no one, Jesus nor John, could conceive of someone being born again and not being manifested in the character of their lifestyle. So, when you're resurrected physically, your destiny is determined if you've been resurrected spiritually. Did you hear that? There are two resurrections, the spiritual resurrection and the physical resurrection. Everyone will be resurrected physically. But whether that physical resurrection is for eternal life or eternal separation is determined by whether you have experienced the first resurrection. The two are tied together. The one determines the other. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We praise you. We bless you for the promise that we have uh, of eternal life. Father, I pray that tonight that those who 
have experienced the spiritual resurrection that Jesus spoke of here, who have heard his voice and have been raised from death into life. I pray that those who, who have experienced that spiritual, spiritual resurrection tonight, Father, would be able to glory in that. I pray that you would give them a sense of peace and glory in the, the fact of their own personal spiritual resurrection, their salvation, and the security of that salvation. I pray, Father, that you'll allow them to glory in that. Someone here tonight, Father, that has never been spiritually resurrected, maybe has been through the motions, but has never really been spiritually resurrected, never really heard the voice of Jesus and come forth from spiritual death, Father, that they would not rejoice in that, but, Father, that they would receive Jesus tonight. And I pray it in his name. Amen. Stand together.